Welcome to AI, Government and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence. Today we have Somalia Agnia. We're honored to have her here. She's an incredibly visionary and accomplished entrepreneur who's been at the forefront of leveraging technology to drive social and organizational transformation. She has a pretty illustrious career being in the vanguard of fields ranging from AI to educational reform. She's the co-founder and CEO of Geeks Limited, so you're really going for playing into the stereotype there, and the Sutton College of Technology and developer of the Word Up app. Somaya is not just a technology strategist, she's a change maker. She's been globally recognizing winning the Queen's Award for Enterprise and Innovation. I'm going to get you the King's Award now, too. And Gold Stevie Award for Most Innovative Company in the Year in Europe. She's a member of the Forbes Business Council and hosts the Innovation Room podcast. She's just doing everything. Puts me to shame. So let's not waste any more time. We'll dive right in. So Samia, welcome. And just off the bat, you had talked right about the concept of augmented intelligence, not necessarily just artificial intelligence. So explain to us what you mean by that and why you use that term. Well, hi, Alan. Thank you for having me here. And thanks for very long and humbling introduction. (laughs) I've always been very passionate in bringing harmony between human and technology. And that's the philosophy or the thinking behind augmented intelligence. So as we are seeing the world being transformed with artificial intelligence, we are walking into the new era of augmented intelligence, which means artificial intelligence overlay on human intelligence. And how do we define that? How do we engage with that? And how do we navigate and learn and grow in this new world is what I'm very passionate about to learn more and to share more about. So given that, you know, obviously, I think a lot of people have talked about some of the benefits of AI, where, you know, Mark Andreessen talks about having sort of a personal assistant for everything, your tutor and your guide throughout. So. I mean, the thing I think a lot of people are concerned about, they can see that benefit, though, is when that agent becomes smarter than you. And I think we are kind of looking potentially at that in the next few years. What are the kind of implications of that? And what's the downside? Well, I think I'm slightly positively biased. Being an entrepreneur, you try to build a team around you that are smarter than you. So I'm not necessarily terrified of seeing something smarter than me. I see it all the time and it's a joy to work with people that are smarter than you in the areas that they're experts in. So I think dealing with something that is smarter than us is not necessarily a frightening thing. If we behave the right way and we design the future um, in the right way that is aligned with what we want to see. Having said that, I'm not delusional about some of the existentialist threats that are being discussed, rightly so. I just believe as technologists 
whose responsible is to implement, help the society to implement technology and engage with technology, it's not my job to think about what if AI makes us irrelevant and if we all die. I think we have scientists who work on that. We have governments who need to think about that. And my job is working on the scenario that that's not going to happen. So we have a future that is in harmony with technology. And how can I help make that future the best version it can be? Because it's going to be a transition. How can I help the society and the businesses specifically to transition? What are the skills we need to learn? What are the ways we need to change? What are the new business models that we have to create? What are the new ways of doing business we have to create to be able to thrive in that kind of environment? So I'm not denying the existentialist. I just think it's not relevant to the discussions that I'm interested in. Yeah, well, I love that distinction about, you know, a lot of leaders say you want to be the stupidest person in the room and, you know, you build the team around you to help elevate. And it's a great way to tie AI into that. Like maybe that's a great metaphor for why why it could work. Specifically in terms of the future of the work and employment, I see a lot of insecurities that comes from, oh, what if I lose my job? And I'm like, that's the wrong mindset. It's about how can I change in this evolving world and do something different if what I know and what I do is no longer relevant. It's absolutely fine for me. That's probably what, We need the governments of different nations to start doing some cultural work on the nations to create a sense of what I call growth mindset for the nations. (laughs) And I don't see governments doing that. I want to see all governments doing projects, doing initiatives on the national and local levels to create more growth mindset in the nations they're leading, because that's going to be key in the years forward. We need to all be cool with learning new things. So we need to develop that growth mindset. I had talked to someone yesterday and we were talking about, I think GPT 3.5 had like an IQ estimated, right? Of 105, don't quote me. But then like he was saying that GPT 4 was scored at 155. And then we, I was looking at Jonathan Van Neumann, you know, scientist here in the United States and his IQ was estimated at 200. And it's not like those things got more evil as the IQ range, right? So they contributed more and more to society. So I don't think it's axiomatic that the smarter something gets, the more likely it wants to kill you. So hopefully that's the case. Generally, I'm an optimist human. So if I do a bit of caveat, we had some pretty smart evil people in the history of humanity. But generally looking at the ratio of when people got smarter, if they were aligned to the right values, they stopped the bad things. Like as we got smarter, we created human rights. We created animal rights. We tried to protect life as we became smarter and we realized, you know, there are better ways of doing things. We can grow, you know, our food in a different way. We can travel in a different way that is less harmful to the society we are, or to the planet we are living in. So I expect AI to do better by becoming smarter. And then you take away the greed, which is some of the darker part of humanity. If this new type of intelligence doesn't have those kind of bad qualities, then it might not do the stupid decisions that humanity has made over the years that was destructive. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think, not to get too philosophical here, but with the new technology 
that can better the world, there's always some level of conflict. And it isn't necessarily about the bigger intelligence. I mean, evil people are going to use whatever technologies are around to do what they do, right? So I think at each level, that always sort of happens. There's a conflict. And then out of that emerges sort of a safer, better world. But, you know, there is that conflict. And yeah, I think it's really important to understand that AI is no different than any other technology, and it can be used by people for bad things, of course, as are lots of technologies right now. All of that is very true. It applies to any sort of technology. But the only reason AI is amplifying those kind of areas more is the scale of it happening and the pace of it happening and the accessibility of it. So say, for example, if you have created a really dangerous technology, it's probably somewhere very protected, owned by states, and you know it's not accessible to your normal average human down the road. Whereas AI now is very, very accessible, like any 14-year-old could bring down the whole internet if they want to. And it's a matter of time they might do that. And by bringing the whole thing down, I mean... What is going to stop somebody to use AI to generate thousands and thousands of articles, fake data and facts and feel the internet, launch blogs and that kind of stuff. And then like you search the internet and what you get, you can't distinguish like what's right or what's right. So internet becomes completely unusable. That's something that was discussed on Stephen Bartlett's one of the latest podcasts. And I was like, yeah, that's very true. Actually, we might lose. The ability to use the internet as a result of somebody doing something stupid that like, let's have some fun. So it's like that being so accessible to everybody is what is concerning most people. The answer to the most of the problems with AI is more AI, right? So <laughs> that's the only way you can fight it, right? So, you know, we focus on government here. So going back, you'd mentioned, you know, the need for government to experiment and get a growth mindset going. And I know your company's done some work with various levels of government. So where do you see sort of the benefits of AI? Like how can government really partner to use it? And then we'll talk a little bit about the challenges of which there are many. Obviously, without going into too much details, but I've seen really great use cases when where UK government is using AI in delivering great service to the public. One of the use cases was one of the departments who were serving vulnerable people. So the, the use case for helping the vulnerable people. And it would take them six weeks by the time they received a request from a vulnerable person to process it and action it for them, just because of the volume of stuff they were receiving. And they had teams of hundreds of people processing those letters and trying to action them. And they used AI to process their letters and then sentiment analysis of them to understand which one is more vulnerable <laughs> and then bring them to the top of the list so they can be actioned faster. Once they have done launched the model, they reduce the six weeks to do two days. And that's massive kind of impact to the scale of when the government is implementing something and the impact of it on people. And this was done in a few weeks kind of experiments. I was talking to Malaysian government a couple of weeks ago, and they were saying, oh, the government budget approval process is like a couple of years. If you want something, you have to request it like two years before. <laughs> By the time you get it, how do we do this? And I was like, well, that's where governments needs to change. So if there was an earthquake in Malaysia, you wouldn't 
wait two years to get a fund to go deal with it. So treat it as your emergency fund. Treat it as, you know, there is an earthquake that you need to do something about. And that's why I'm proud of the UK government in terms of taking really good lead on, let's implement, let's create really good use cases to earn the trust of the public, to show the public and other government departments that this is how we can use it responsibly, safely, in use cases that we know is not going to be very gray in terms of how the public is going to respond if we use AI in that. We are not screening people. They had problems, still debates in police departments using AI for facial recognition. And that has a big backlash because when you get that wrong, you put an innocent person in jail and that's not okay. But trying to process letters to be able to serve people faster then that's a great use case. So let's focus on the use cases that are having a positive impact rather than the a bit gray use cases when the public is going to backlash. And I think that's the part that the government can create a different culture in people and take the control out of the media because the mainstream media is just going Hollywood on AI and <laughs> talking about robots and how the world is ending. They're not going into... Actually, we have seen a really good use case here. Actually, there's really good positive impact of AI helping humans. In a lot of cases, it's just regular software, right? That's working and processing letters, right? But I think that's a good point is also, you know, go over to your internet example from earlier. You know, my sense is at some point, government would be overwhelmed by AI if they don't adapt, right? If they don't employ AI to process letters or other things like they're going to be inundated and even on the regulatory side say ai goes out and finds a million medical cures in two days how you know in this country it's the fda i don't know the agency that approves drugs in the in the uk but you know how are they going to deal with that and like where a bunch of people going to die from cures that exist because you can't process stuff in the way that you've set up your regulatory state so to me, like one of the scary things is like the challenges that government's going to have, just the way it's structured, the way it's staffed. We might not be quite two year in the United States, but we're certainly at more than a year out on planning. So talk a little bit about what you see some of the challenges for government adapting. I think government is no different from any business. So in my day-to-day job, what we do is talking to the businesses on what is their future. Are they going to have a future? Is their business going to be relevant in the era of AI in the future? And I'm not talking about 20 years. I'm talking about three to five years. Is their business going to be relevant? And if not, what's the exit plan? And if their business is relevant, what does it look like? What's the role of human in that business? What's the role of AI in that business? What does the augmented intelligence look like in that business? And sometimes in some cases, the conversation is around, is the industry going to be relevant even? Like it's not just one business, the whole industry is going to change. So if I give you an example from the history, when cars were being invented, a whole industry of horse breeding and training changed. There was a big industry, probably one of the biggest in terms of transport, that they were breeding horses for travel and transport and logistics and things like that. And when the cars came along, then that was completely irrelevant. So they had to, some of them got out of business, completely vanished, and some of them changed to become racing and entertainment and things like that. So it became a completely different industry. 
So this will happen in any technological advancement. Some of these things will change. And if people are in denial, then they are in denial. So they will be shocked. They will be not being prepared for it. And I don't see government being any different. And what I'm seeing in the UK and elsewhere, I'm not seeing government having that conversation. They might have it behind the closed doors. I don't know. But in the public, that dialogue, that discourse doesn't exist. That even is a government relevant in the future? Do we need governments? Or can we organize ourselves in a different way? Can we govern our nations in a different way? And what's the short term? What's the longer term? What does the government of a year from now look like? What's the role of the human in the government? Do we need like how many hundreds of MPs and I don't know what you call them? Members of Congress. Yeah. Do you need them? Do you need that many? I think a lot of people would say no, but you know, we have fewer than you do though. But those conversations are not being had. I was in the UK Parliament talking about metaverse. They had a committee that were talking about, they're looking into metaverse and its application in the UK and safety and from legislation point. So they had a session when they had some experts coming in and trying to help them understand. And I was sitting there and I was thinking like, because they asked at the end, what is the question you want to put forward for us to think about? And everybody was saying something. And I was like, but the most important, like the elephant in the room is, do we need a physical government? <laughs> do we need a physical place to go and, yes, we might want to keep it as a museum, but do we need this? How much money are we paying, taxpayer money, to keep the MPs in one physical place? And then they all have their own local presence and offices and they should be in there like they shouldn't need to come physically in one place to debate and vote and all of that that's more short term can we not changing it to a metaverse form that they can have that kind of stuff and i'm not talking about just let them do it over zoom as they did in you know just fit really like the same sort of tangible presence but in a different form or then take it to the next level of, do we even need to have these many MPs? Can we not just run a referendum on every single debate? Just get everybody to come and work. So those kind of debates are not being had in the government. I see them being had in think tanks. One might argue, well, that's the kind of conversation belong to those think tanks and those spaces. But I would argue the difference is AI is moving too fast. And if you are not having these conversations at the right level of business, government being the government, not some advisors having those kind of conversations, then the government is going to be completely agree with your son. The government is going to be shocked and surprised and paralyzed by what is happening to it. The same way we saw it's really interesting to have COVID response, like COVID being so close, how much the world went into a shock and how different government tried to you know, do their best. We know this is not a good thing not to be prepared. That scares me a little bit. Yeah. When you were talking, I was thinking, you know, there's this undercurrent of fear of killer robots, right? But like, maybe really a lot of the fear is that's sort of a way of deflecting. And really the fear is this thing is just going to change my whole world. And like, I don't want that to happen. And certainly I think in government, there are lots of great people in our government, but it's also a very stable you know, it's lifetime employment. Most sectors of the United States are not like that. And there is no competition, no real competition in the government. Every country has one public sector 
you know, one government, you don't have different public agencies to compete with each other. So that creates more danger for the government because in the normal space of business, you know, if you don't move, then new competition is going to be created. You will be disrupted and that those kind of stuff with the government. Say, for example, if you're environmental agency, there is no second environmental agency that they're going to do something and you're going to be behind. That's the danger of them doing nothing and waiting too long and then be hit by something that they are not prepared for. I put up the example of, again, going back to AI comes up with a hundred or a million cures, FDA can't process it. But now you have CRISPR and you have all these ways. It would probably become very clear that this, hey, I'm dying of this disease. This cure has been kind of proven by AI multiple times. And now I could actually probably make it with a home printer. You know, they might just ignore the FDA and everyone start making their own medicine. You know, I mean, it's a little out there, but I do think if the government doesn't adapt. Exactly. That's so important to look at. What's the vision for a government? But, but, but these are more like, so I would say that won't probably happen in the next three to five years. People being able to build their own drug. Like that's not a three to five years. I don't think it will happen. But what can happen is that, for example, universities become irrelevant. And we saw already by chat GPT, then everybody's getting like a star. You know, everybody is getting distinction all of a sudden on their essays. And what universities do is first act, let's ban chat GPT. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. Is it not the whole purpose of the university to prepare people for their life, for the future? And you're banning AI for the very people that are going to be living in the world of AI. Like, how does that university act opposite of what they are created for? And that could happen to the government. Government could become the very opposite of what they are created to do, which is protecting people, making sure order is, you know, there's order in the society and there is like justice and whatever. So that becomes like they could fall into completely doing opposite of what they're supposed to do. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's a guy here, an economist named Arnold Kling, and he had suggested that when this hit, Harvard was trying to ban ChatGPT or whatever. And he's like, I think it would be better to have their exam be go use ChatGPT to get the best answer to this question. <laughs> and by interacting with it and then improving your prompt, you probably learn more than sitting in a classroom for an entire semester. Absolutely. The first thing comes to mind of a technologist is that, first of all, you don't fight technology. That's a lost cause. So you learn how to behave or to how to use technology in the right way. And then you create some boundaries and guardrails and policies and, you know, guidelines around how to use it. So if I was in charge of those universities, I would be like, let them use it and change the assessment to instead of the actual outcome being the assessment, the outcome is explain how did you get to the outcome using ChatGPT. We want you to be able to critique, like, how many round of prompts did you give? Where are those prompts? Just record, just explain, critique, analyze how you engage with AI. And why does it matter? It's like when there was no Google and people had to go through and some PDFs to just find out, you know, the answers. And then if the search engine exists, do you tell people don't use the search engine? Or if Google Map comes along, you tell them, no, go back to the yellow pages, whatever paper maps. And like, you don't do that to technology. Technology always prevails. <laughs> so learn how to work with it. 
Technology always prevails. I like it. Curious, I've been thinking about this. Do you have a sense of where government might see this tsunami first? Like what will present to them? It's hard. I'm kind of afraid it would be something that would be society would pay big for it. So, for example, there, as you said, demand for something that they're not prepared for. Say, for example, there are cases of AI being lawyers. If you can do that, then the lawyer doesn't need some weeks of preparation to go to court. So all of a sudden you have lots of cases that, you know, could just be done <laughs> really fast. And then that creates massive pipeline. Like my fear is if the government doesn't do things, that we will have chaos in the society. It will create chaos. In a way, it's like a massive, almost like real world denial of service attack. Yeah, because what AI does takes the society to hyper performance because everything can be done faster. Like this morning, I'm doing an event and they asked me to do a description of my talk. And I made a mistake of reading 500 words descriptions. So I did a 500 and I did use ChatGPT even for that. But then they emailed me back and I was at the deadline. So they needed it really today. And they emailed me back and said, oh no, not 500 words, 500 characters. I was like, that's going to take me forever to make 500 words to 500 characters and not lose the essence. And then I was like, what am I doing? Chat GPT, like take this 500, make it 500 characters. And with a click of a button, there you go, you have it. And it didn't lose the essence because the prompts I used was do not change any of the important points, just summarize it to 500 characters. So that's the capability. If the Customers of the government being citizens become all of a sudden very capable of processing what they need to process to work with the government. All of a sudden, the government is going to be having massive backlogs everywhere, and that could collapse the government. Yeah, well, I look at it as we're a contractor, right? So we bid on projects. I mean, what happens when everybody can just generate a proposal from the facts there, right? And how does the government's got hundreds of these things? They can't sift through it all or... You know, and you can protest proposals, so you can like auto-generate a protest, like you don't have to pay any money. I mean, it just clogged the entire system. All you say is the important and valid points and valid concerns. But what I like to focus on is the opportunities that we will be losing if we don't engage. Because I'm an optimist, remember, I want to go back to like the positive. To say we have a chance of building a future that we want. We have a chance, we have a duty. And I'm not talking about six years old. We do have a duty to make sure they are prepared for the new world. But even for the 16 years old and 18 years old, that they are going to start their career, we have a duty and a chance to create a world for them that is nicer than ours, that is more capable, and they have more options, more choices, more better choices to live their lives and spend their lives. They don't deserve to stand in government queues for. I don't know, renewing their passports, like they don't need to do those things, like everything can be so smooth. And if the government is missing on that, then they are not being good government. They are not being a good business. They are not thinking about their customers' experience and how they can serve them better. And the reality of the world is the customer expectation is changing so fast that if a business is not able to keep up with the demand, which is hyper-personalized, hyper-contextualized, hyper-fast, like if the government cannot keep up, then the natural thing is, well, they'll collapse. 
like businesses collapse when they can't keep up with the demand of the customers. That's the reality. And we don't want our governments to collapse. That's not what we want. <laughs> I say bravo. Like, that's awesome. I think I might clip that and put it on my website. I think that's exactly the message they need. So let's talk a little just quickly about the UK has a big summit coming up. Yes. We want to be leaders. We are very excited about that. And it's a very pointedly being hosted at Bletchley Park, the home of the code-breaking team in World War II. So yeah, how do you see the UK's leadership and response to AI? It's a bit of emotional, <laughs> complex emotional matter for me because I really like what they're doing. I think UK has a history of being able to bring different countries, different nations on the table, round the table, do negotiations do that kind of facilitation, like UK has a history of doing that. And I think it's, I wasn't surprised when our prime minister said that. It was a natural move from the UK. Physically, we are in the middle of, you know, parts of the world, so it helps. But also the way the UK culture and policy and things has been shaped over the centuries. We like to create dialogue and we like to solve big problems by conversation. So I think it's very natural for UK to do that. What I didn't like <laughs> is we are going to be the leaders in this. And I'm like, you don't declare we are going to be the leaders. You just lead if you're leaders. That's very un-British of them. Very, very un-British. And I blamed Rishi Sunak for spending too much time in the US. And I was like, mm, you've been Americanized a bit. Like, this is not what British people say. Like, we don't declare we are leaders. But that's the part that I'm like, doesn't sit well with my Britishness. But I do think it's a good move. I think any, and I'm not saying UK needs to do that, only anybody else, the more conversations, the more dialogue, this is a global matter and we have to solve it together. Like that's where it's about humanity and the future of humanity. It's not about which country is going to have more power. Any AI the moment is out, then it impacts all of us. So it's very important to have those dialogues, make sure we are able to talk to China. We are able to talk to Russia, states, Iran. Like we need to be able to talk and create something with the view of future of humanity rather than selfish, short-term thinking. Well, to be fair to the UK, I do think there is a reason for that. I mean, DeepMind is from there. They have a long history of AI and research. As you point out, the UK has kind of a unique role. Obviously, the United States is global power and, you know, our conflict with China, that causes some issues, but the UK can kind of play that role like it has traditionally with, with special relationship and also being kind of outside the EU now and not subject to what I think are insane EU regulations, but still kind of integrated there. They have a good role to play. As I say, UK is very good at creating the right conversations. Even after Brexit, I know for example, we are working very closely with EU on the EU policy. We have a large group. I know as part of my work with British Computer Society and other fellows there, I know the person who's in charge of UK delegation and he's brilliant and the work he's doing with the EU is amazing. So it's, you know, UK is very good at doing that. So I think it's just a natural move. If we hadn't done that, that would be a question mark. Yeah, exactly. No, that's great. And so just kind of going, finishing up, I want to talk a little bit because you were very involved in helping set up Sutton College of Technology, right? And so I think you kind of addressed that need for more leaders and more optimistic technologists. So 
to talk a little bit about what you were doing there? Sure. I think the lack of digital skills or technology skills in the world is something that doesn't need to be explained. Like everywhere, we are struggling with having enough people knowing technology and be able to implement technology to transform the businesses and the way we organize our societies. We have found, and we want to address with the college, which is going to be the first UK tech specialized university. So the first UK university that is completely like utterly dedicated to tech and nothing else. And the government had changed rules in 2019 to encourage these kind of specialized universities to come along because they realized their traditional universities because of their size and their number of subjects and complexity of organizations, they are not able to move fast and change fast and respond. So they changed their laws in 2019 to enable new UK universities to come along that are smaller, more specialized in specific areas so they can respond faster to change. The gap we want to try to address is to create uh, technology leaders. And by that, I mean there is going to be more and more need for technologists in the world trying to implement technology and do digital transformation, but we don't have enough people who understand how to lead these initiatives. And our leaders in different businesses, we don't have enough technologies at the top table. We don't have enough technologies who can create meaningful technology strategy that is aligned with the business objectives, and they're not able to lead it basically because they don't understand. So what we want to offer is master's degrees for experienced people from other sectors that we teach them very specific syllabus of stuff, all AI based, obviously, like their life throughout that year is going to be very much integrated with AI. So we want them to experience a very different interactions and life experience as they are studying in the university and then come out as leaders in their respective industries. So think about a lawyer who becomes a technology leader in the legal sector. So you understand completely the sector, they're a senior person in that sector, but then they can work with technologies, they can lead the technologies to actually implement digital transformation and take the firm to the next level. And that's what we are missing. We don't have enough leaders. And that's the problem because of safety, security, ethical issues, and generally like objective strategic engagement with technology that would evolve the business rather than seeing it as a, you know, just the cost of the business. We need to have some systems and some you know, technologies to do our job. That's great. So it's a year program? Yes. That's fantastic. We are thinking about allowing it to be part-time as well, but at the moment we are debating, really, we want them to immerse themselves. So it's about getting into this world and really, yeah, I love that idea. It would be fascinating to see some stories of the, you know, businesses sending people to come back and how that could really be change agents. Interestingly, the role of government is taking too long for the government bodies to approve because UK university approval is very rigorous. So you can't just set up a university. It has to go through very rigorous assessment and regulation, but that's taking too long. When I'm lobbying the government, I'm like, you can't take that long. We need these people yesterday. <laughs> You're taking too long. We're ready to teach them. We're ready to produce them. But you're taking too long, so you need to change. You're the problem here. Excellent. Well, that's right back to that tsunami problem, right? They got to open the gates so you can 
get through it. There's got to be new ways to do that kind of what we would call accreditation here. You know, there's got to be a new solution to that, right? To show faster. And that's the future of education and the future of regulation of education, which is very, very much talking to the right people about. I fully agree. I just can't believe someone would go park at three years in the UK or four years in the United States studying all in one concentrated block and then maybe they get a master's after but you know it seems to me like this model where they might go in and immerse on something new for maybe it's even six months right and then go back out that seems like a much more iterative and then it, like the whole like the system of training we have designed to train them creates a graph of what they know and what they learn and that stays with them. So as new concepts come along, they see the new dots in their graph show up that they don't know and they can go back to the university and learn that a specific dot that is connected to others. As I said, we need to create growth mindset for the nation. So we are creating a university that you stay connected with throughout your life, basically, after that, rather than, oh, I'm just graduated and it's finished. No, we are going to change their mindset that you're not done. You just started a journey. And that journey with technology is just constantly. And so the vision is they would come back or maybe they could do part-time after some other things, right? Absolutely. After graduation, they're going to have continuous learning networks lectures and whatever else like case studies sharing is creating that community of like-minded tech leaders that have the right mindset understand how do we do tech for good how do we do it responsibly how do we do it profitably because we cannot go and break a business with the cost of the it projects that we want to do so it needs to have return on investment so it's like creating that maturity bringing that maturity to every business regarding technology do you take 50-year-olds? Oh, absolutely. Everybody. Like, do you want to come? <laughs> I might come. I, that sounds good to me. I don't know if my wife would be up for the year, but we could talk to her. Well, London is fascinating and it doesn't disappoint anybody. Like, whatever taste you have, I can guarantee you'll have a good time in London. I would love to be in London for a year, believe me. Well, this has been fascinating and the stuff you're doing is really incredible. I think you've really hit on a couple of things here about you know, the growth mindset, this way of developing yourself over your lifetime of skills, and then looking at that, it's sort of like a metaphor for what the government needs to do in response to AI. It's really fascinating stuff. So I'm glad you're out there fighting that fight. And we thank you for it. Well, thank you for having me to talk about these things. AI, government and the future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com and then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, thanks for listening.